Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss Ben Graham and the model we run based on his book, The Intelligent Investor. Graham's influence on investors, including the greatest investor in the world, Warren Buffett, reaches far and wide. Graham promoted a long-term, intelligent investing view and urged investors to look for stocks that offered a margin of safety and promoted thinking like an owner of the business and more than just a stockholder. Graham's broader contributions and ideas remain timeless, even if traditional value investing strategies that look at metrics like assets have fallen on difficult times. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion on Ben Graham and his value investing methodology. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about one of the strategies on Validia. Um, As many of our listeners uh, might know, we run a number of different investment models on Validia. Some of them are built off of the strategies of legendary investors, people like Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, and others. And then there's a a, a sort of second set of strategies, which are based more so on uh, factor-based models and academic work. But today, we're going to talk about um, a value strategy, and it's one that we base off of um, the approach outlined in Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. So just a little sort of history and background on Graham. Um, Graham is considered sort of the the father of value investing. And um, he really established this initial value-based strategy um, after the Great Depression. So Graham actually had two um, very uh, big experiences with sort of losing money um, in his career. One was in the early 19th century where his family lost um, a significant amount of money. I think it was like 1907 or something like that, where his family lost a lot of their wealth. And then actually in the Great Depression, stocks obviously fell by 80 or 90%, and Graham's clients basically all got wiped out. So those two experiences for him, I think were very important and influenced him tremendously as he sort of look to develop what is, you know, what was his value-based investing strategy sort of coming out of that period. Um, He wrote security analysis with David Dodd in the 30s, and then The Intelligent Investor was published um, in the late 1940s, I believe. And as Benjamin Graham, or excuse me, as Warren Buffett um, has said, uh, you know, The Intelligent Investor is is probably one of the best investing books of, of, of all time and it had a significant impact on the way Buffett sort of at least initially approached um, investing in terms of buying value stocks. So there's two, and really the title of the book, The Intelligent Investor really captures what Graham was trying to get at with what he was writing about was he thought investors should be one investors and not speculators. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And two, they should be intelligent. But in Graham's mind, intelligence wasn't necessarily like the guys with the highest IQ, the intelligent part, which is very important, was being able to sort of control your emotions and to control your temperament and not, you know, let those things sort of get you in trouble when investing. In terms of the investor part of it, what was very important to Graham was 
coming off of the the 20s and after the Great Depression, you know, or during the Great Depression, there was a lot of speculation in the market. And Graham very much took a very conservative view to investing. And he sort of developed at least initially the concept of when you're buying stocks, you actually want to buy them and you want to uh, invest in them and, and treat them like you're buying the business, not that you're buying just a piece of paper or a stock. Um, so I'll just, maybe I'll just stop there. And Jack, do you want to um, sort of comment or build off any of that history and background? Yeah, what's interesting to me about Graham is, you know, there, there's two schools of thought on Graham. You know, one school of thought is Graham has developed some timeless value investing principles. And, you know, those principles should work just as well today as they did back in Graham's time. And then the, the flip side of it is strategies need to evolve over time. And so although some of the things in Graham's strategy, you know, make a lot of sense, over time, you've, you've seen value investors evolve in terms of the way they invest. And so that school of thought would say, you know, maybe Graham's principles are not as applicable today as they were in the past because things have changed. And, you know, looking at, you know, Buffett's a good example of this. I mean, Buffett obviously started more towards the Graham deep value side of things. And then Buffett became more of a, you know, let's find good quality businesses and try to acquire them at a cheap price. And, to, and today you could argue, and we'll get into this when we talk about the strategy, but today you could argue another evolution is going on where things like intangible assets are becoming much more important and strategies like Graham that require that use things like the price to book aren't taking into account those intangible assets. And so maybe a further evolution is required and, you know, a Graham type strategy doesn't work. So you know, we're going to talk about the strategy in general, but that is sort of the debate is, you know, does this deep value Ben Graham type investing still work today? Or, you know, does a strategy need to evolve to work in the current environment? One of the things that Graham felt really strongly about is trying to find and buy stocks that had a margin of safety. And we'll sort of talk about how that strat the strategy we run tries to accomplish it. But that goes back to the idea that after the Great Depression, I think the statistics are Graham never first of all, he didn't take, it took clients five years to make all their money back from when stocks fell. And Graham and his partners didn't take a salary for that period of time until his clients were made whole. So that gave him a lot of credibility in the market at the time. But to the point of the margin of safety, what Graham was really trying to look for and what he um, wrote about in The Intelligent Investor was you want to find stocks that offer some margin of safety so you can buy them and not be worried that you're going to have a permanent loss of capital. And so that brought Graham into, you know, very conservatively financed companies that traded, you know, at very low multiples. And that's what essentially is reflected in the strategy that we run. But I think this idea of trying to find, you know, stocks or assets that have a margin of safety is a very appealing one. Um, but, you know, that's, that's very hard to do because that, means that you have to try to you know find stocks that have that 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 have that quality and you know and to get under you know to find those stocks um can be sort of a difficult thing depending on what type, types of variables you're using you hit on a really important point there because when you look at people like graham and buffett and how they define risk that can be very different than how your typical and typical investor can define risk so Graham looks at margin of safety. He wants solid businesses. He wants businesses that in the long run, he doesn't think he's gonna lose money, but he's not worried about the day-to-day -day volatility that comes with that. And so you know, Buffett and Graham look at more, I think you said use the word permanent loss of capital. They look at something, they look at risk more from that perspective of permanent loss of capital. Whereas your average investor looks at, you know, how 
volatile is my portfolio every day? And so from the perspective of Graham and Buffett, these types of deep value strategies may not be that risky, but from the perspective of your average investor, they're actually very risky because these are typically companies that have significant problems in their business and there's typically significant volatility in the stock. So I think that's an important point you made is you, for an investor, you have to look a little bit differently at risk versus how Graham and Buffett looked at risk. I mean, that's one thing that's always surprised me because we run a lot of value strategy. So it's like the whole idea of, you know, Graham's strategy and the intelligent investor was trying to find low risk conservative stocks, the ones that had this margin of safety in them. But yet, you know, the value strategies that we run, they tend to, like you said, they tend to buy sort of these companies that sort of have problems. And so some of those companies actually don't have really a margin of safety. So it's interesting how the a value strategy sort of has morphed over time into, and that's, by the way, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast that, you know, value investing tends to work because of a behavioral reason, but also a risk-based reason. And value strategies can be, you know, I guess, um, certainly more volatile than the market and riskier to some extent, depending on how you're deploying them. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And that, this is probably a good time to transition into looking at the actual criteria and, and how he looked at this whole concept of margin of safety. Um, you know, first it's, it's important to distinguish, you know, Graham did have two strategies in the book and one is called the defensive investor. One is called the enterprising investor. The defensive investor was considered the more conservative strategy. The enterprising investor was considered the more aggressive strategy, but both of them, we, we run both of them. We run on our site, we run the defensive investor behind the scenes. We run the enterprising investor. Both of them are pretty deep value strategies. I mean, it's not like the enterprising investor is buying high, you know, Google and Facebook. Um, you know, both of them are pretty deep value strategies, but the defensive investor is a little more deep value of a strategy. So just briefly, I'll go through the criteria just to, just to summarize it. Um, you know, the, the first thing he looks for is he wants businesses of adequate size. So, you know, he had, he had a smaller number in the book, but we've inflation adjusted over time. So we, we look at adequate size as a sales greater than $1 billion. Um, and then he starts looking at the balance sheet. And so you want a su sufficiently strong financial position, I think is the words he might've used. Um, and that, that is a current ratio, which is current assets divided by current liabilities greater than or equal to two and net current assets, which is current assets minus current liabilities greater than long-term debt. So the, the ability to service that debt was important. Um, and then and then he looks at earnings growth, but he's not looking at earnings growth in the way we might look at earnings growth as like a growth investor. He, he wanted earnings to be positive in, in all of the past 10 years. And then he also wanted a total earnings growth over the entire 10 year period of 30%. So that's not 30% a year, that's 30% total. So that's not a very high growth in, growth rate in earnings, but at least that there were earnings growing over time. Um, and then just briefly, the last two, he wanted consistent dividends over 20 years, but we've decided not to in incorporate that. And the reason is companies are much less likely to pay dividends now, and definitely much less likely to pay dividends for 20 consistent years than they were in the past. And so if you incorporate that requirement, you will never have any stocks that pass the strategy. So we decided to say the world's a little bit different now than it was in Graham's day. So we don't incorporate the 20 years of dividends. And then the final part is, is valuation. And, you know, he, he wanted a PE less than 15 and he wanted the PE multiplied by the price to book to be less than 22. So by today's standards, that is a very deep value strategy. Those, you know, there are not a lot of companies that have PEs less than 15 and PE, you know, times price to book less than 22, much less ones that meet his other criteria. So this isn't, this isn't a strategy that sees a lot of stocks passing it. Um, but, the, but there are some, and it's definitely, if you want to classify it sort of in the factor world we live in today, it's, it's definitely classified as a deep value strategy with a little bit of quality attached to it. Yeah. And, uh, one of the sort of, um, 
ideas that kind of came out of that strategy, and you sort of hit on it, is the, this idea of net nets, which, you know, for Graham, if he could find companies that were trading at below their liquidation value. So I think if you take, if you could find companies where you could basically pay off all the long-term debt and let them be left over with some assets, and you could find companies trading below that, that was sort of like the cream of the crop for, for Graham, because then you you clearly had a margin of safety because the assets on the books for the company, um, you know, were you could buy the stock basically for for less than that. Um, those net net type of stocks don't exist anymore uh, or they're very, very rare to find them um, just in terms of, you know, the the strategy that we run. I mean, it does. You know, there's basic material companies in there. There's some energy companies. This is oftentimes over over the years picked up retailers. So these are like areas of the market that the valuations are low because there's probably some dark cloud or problem with the um, with the company or with the industry or with the sector. Um, but you know what it's really trying to do is it's trying to uncover those values um, based on the criteria that you that you outlined. One of the other things with the Graham model. Uh, we've been running it since 03. So you sort of had this like magic period for these types of deep value strategies really from like 2001, let's say, or maybe even 2000 through like 06. And then since then, you know, due to a, a number of things that you mentioned and other things that we've discussed, you know, value strategies have really um, struggled over the last five years, but even over the last 10 years, they've done pretty poorly. Yeah, and that, that sort of gets at the issue of that we talked about at the beginning, which is, does this still apply today? Can you use this strategy today? And, you know, the answer is a mixed answer, um, you know, because this is a strategy that relies heavily on price to book and price to book has become something that makes a lot less sense in the current environment than it did in Graham's environment. Because obviously of the rise in intangible assets and, you know, if, if intangible assets are something and we talked about this in our podcast with Kai Wu, we just released, if intangible assets are something like 50% or more of the economy, those aren't reflected in book value. And so by valuing companies using book value, you're, you're not getting an accurate measurement. The one thing I will say in defense of these types of strategies, and I, I have not been a huge supporter of price to book, but what I will say, and I think we've talked about this in other podcasts as well, is at the bottom of the barrel, when you're looking at the cheapest stocks using price to book, intangible assets are not as big of an issue because these the types of companies you mentioned, these basic materials types of companies, they don't have a lot of intangible assets. So pr price to book makes essentially zero sense at the top end of the range. So if you were going to run a long, short strategy on price to book, that makes zero sense because the Googles of the world, you can't say that they're overvalued based on price to book because they have such large intangible assets. But at the bottom end, you know, we, we ran a test once where we looked at this and we looked at Graham strategy using a standard price to book and then Graham strategy using an enhanced price to book, which would, you know, use advertising and R&D would capitalize them over time and add them to book value. And, and what we found is the, the bottom 100 stocks or the, the top scoring 100 stocks, but the cheapest 100 stocks, those stocks were 85% the same, even after you incor incorporated intangible assets. So what that shows is just what I was saying before at the bottom of the barrel, you know, you're, you're not that different because of intangible assets, because those types of companies don't have intangible assets. So I think the, the answer to the question is there certainly are better ways to, you know, use value now. Obviously, you would expect over time with this many people studying value, they've learned some things and they've figured out some things to do better. But I also think given where we are right now and given that price to book has been the absolute worst factor for a very long period of time, it's certainly possible that even though these strategies may not make as much sense long-term, you could, you could easily have a situation where a value strategy like this 
is one of the better performers in the next 10 years because of certain trends behind the scenes. You know, if you look at the types of sectors it, it buys, or if you just look at mean reversion in general, and that, you know, when a strategy is out of favor, it tends to come back. You know, there's two different arguments here. And Kai Wu kind of made this point on the podcast with us is the hundred year argument for these price to book strategies is probably not very good. But the next 10 year argument for these price to book strategies is better because they've struggled so much in the past decade that they could end up doing, you know, fairly well going forward in the next decade. Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, uh, the other thing to just mention is that you know, Buffett started as a deep value cigar butt like investor, but over time, you know, he even migrated away from that due to some scalability issues, but also some of the points that you're talking about, which is, you know, there's different ways to define value. So he became more of a high quality sort of compounding. You're looking for stocks with strong brand names like Coca-Cola, or even in the case of, you know, his largest position today in terms of Apple, which, you know, has a lot of intangible assets on the book. So, um, just a few other sort of, I thought maybe to end, um, just another sort of fun fact and fact and point with Graham is, did you know Graham's last name originally wasn't Graham? It was Grossbaum. So when he migrated, yeah, when he came here from um, England, his last name was Grossbaum. But during, I guess, World War One, because there was a negative people with like names that sounded like they were German weren't looked on as favorably here in this country. So his family changed their uh, surname to, to Graham. Um, so that's one interesting little fun fact. And the other thing, maybe just to wrap it up is, I listened to a uh, interview with Bruce Greenwald, who's his point was that Graham's biggest contribution to investing wasn't the value investing sort of strategy or philosophy. It was more the professionalism that he brought to the sort of investing community. And, you know, it sort of started with security analysis and the intelligent investor. But um, and Jack, maybe you can you might know this. I think the whole CFA designation comes out of, you know, Ben Graham and sort of David Dodd and that establishment that was established, um, you know, decades ago. So that what Greenwald was saying was that was, you know, Graham's biggest sort of contribution was this professionalism of the investment management industry that he sort of, you know, helped to establish in the early days. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that. But I, th I think you're right. I mean, you know, the, the, the major contribution of Graham is not this strategy that we've just outlined. Um, you know, the major contribution of Graham is probably the evolution of how to think about companies and how to think about investing. And, you know, th that's probably his biggest contribution. And in terms of the strategy, you know, the strategy is a very deep value strategy. It certainly is not something that, you know, is someone should be running as, as their only way to invest, obviously with, you know, the problems with price to book and also with the problems with just using one metric in a value strategy. So we've always said, you know, you want to spread your risks as much as possible. And so having one deep value strategy you're running doesn't make any sense. And, you know, using value as the only factor you invest with doesn't make probably a lot of sense either. So this is a deep value strategy. It's a risky strategy, but there's a lot we can learn from Graham, like you said, in terms of how to think about companies and how to think about the role behavior plays in investing. So there, there's so much he's contributed here that's, you know, made investing, a, you know, the investing world better. Yeah, good point. So we'll try to do one of these deep dive um, uh, podcasts on our strategies, maybe once a month or something like that. But we hope you guys um, enjoyed this conversation on Benjamin Graham and the value model we run. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant 
and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.